Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the show, Insights with Ben Choder. I'm actually really excited this week. One of the reasons why is I get to interview Jimmy Blackman, whose book, um, Cowboys Over Iraq, was an incredible read. Um, I actually read it in two days, two afternoons sitting outside in the sun, loved it. Uh, I learned a lot about leadership, incredible storyteller. You know, in fact, instead of me talking, let me bring Jimmy in. Jimmy, first, thank you for your service, sir. It is amazing what you and and your fellow um, soldiers have done for our country, and I, it doesn't go unnoticed by me, and I really appreciate it. So I just wanted to first say thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. You don't have to. You don't have to thank me. I got to tell you one thing before we jump in with the book. One of the things, and you had me at this um, in the very beginning of the book. You start talking about when you first got to Iraq, and you sat around with a bunch of the other senior leaders in, in there. And you, everyone was smoking cigars, telling their war stories. And I truly felt like I was there at that picnic bench, sitting there as people were looking at their cigars. Because even when I go play golf with my friends, they do the exact same thing. Is it lit? Is it not? And the moment you have a cigar in your hand, it's time to tell stories. And it, it was amazing. Like, How did it feel... Like now, in hindsight, after writing the book, when you were there and they were all regaling in their stories. Yeah. So for me, that's at the beginning, as you mentioned. And so I I showed up actually after the initial invasion had taken place. So those guys had created these bonds in this crucible of war. And they've got all these stories that, you know, that they love telling and they're so exciting, but I'm not involved in any of those. So as a senior leader coming in, um, it made me, you know, wish that I had been able to be there and be a part of that. But it also gave me some concern. Okay. You know, how long are we going to be here? We had no idea. Am I going to get an opportunity to be a part of that conversation? Am I going to have an opportunity to uh, be able to tell my own stories? And at that point, I didn't know. Yep. That's, it's great. I mean, there's so many little things throughout the book that really struck me. You tell a story also about um, the, the troop as, as the ground troop at first not trusting their air coverage until they got to know, until they actually saw that. And I, th- and I find in business, it's the same thing. When, when I bring a leadership team together and new people come in, building a bond of trust doesn't just happen, right? It, it's something that has to be worked on. One of your quotes, or not your quote, General Petraeus's quote, it is a military axiom that no plan survives first contact. I mean, when I, when I heard that, my head kind of went, my God, it's it's also the same thing in business. You know, you go down with this plan, the first thing you do, but the moment you're out there and there's customers and competition, it's it's not the same thing. Like, what? How did? Why did that resonate with you? Yeah, so uh, we know that the the plan. You know, I think it was Eisenhower said, "In peacetime, plans are worthless, uh, but in combat, plans are everything. Plan or planning is everything." And it's kind of along those same lines of we plan for the, you know, the worst situation we think and we try to build flexibility. But then once, you know, the enemy gets a vote and once the game right. is on, uh, they're a living, thinking, breathing enemy, just like in business. Our competition gets right. a vote. 
pandemics get a vote, as we see, markets get a vote. Uh, and so how do we build flexible, agile organizations that are unified by vision and purpose and have a flexible strategy that very quickly they can put inputs to um, to adjust? Do you think it could be taught? I mean, because we're reading the book, you could tell that the way your mind works you know, you're thinking several moves ahead. You're being, you're very flexible. But do you think you could take anybody and and teach them that same concept? So you said anybody, and I believe, and well, I put I, a lot I'm of thought into this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, no. I, I, I mean, we've I've thought about this a lot. Not anyone. Okay. Some people, right. for example just can't delegate and entrust their subordinates, which creates right. speed and agility. They right. just can't let go. It's a personality thing. So they may be taught and they may understand it, but they can't do it. Um, others uh, see it and it's proven to them. You see the success of a Steve Schiller, who was my boss there, and others go, hey, this is working and what I'm doing is not, and, and they do change. So it's a spectrum. Uh, some folks learn and see it and, you know, and can go a little bit down that road. Others, it's about risk aversion and accepting right. risk as a leader. It gets, it becomes a challenge for many. Have you found, is it easier when you go into a corporation and putting your, now your consulting hat on and taking a bunch of executives and teaching them to be a little more flexible or a soldier who has been taught just to do everything the same over and over again. In the book, when you talked about, I think it was your first night there, your shoes um, had to be lined up perfectly, even though you didn't think anyone really cared, but you knew it would keep you up all night if you didn't. Like a soldier's taught, you know, go down this road, follow, and be flexible. Is it easier to teach someone business, or is it just the person? Let's say my experience is generational. Um, Look, I'm 51 years old. My generation and older – a lot of folks, the old adage, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks is very true. And so I meet a lot of uh, senior executives that have been very successful that struggle with change. Our millennial generation, the Gen Z, which is now in the workforce, yep. they're very they're very open to change and, and they're, they're open to try a lot of, you know, they're very entrepreneurial and they'll try new things and just kind of roll with it more um, than, than my generation and older. So how do you break through to a group that's not used to being flexible? Yeah, I call them small victories. <laughs> you gotta, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time. Show them some success uh, in other organizations, other companies, in their industry. Um, yep. Show them, you know, that. It, the status quo for the last 10 years is is not going to make you successful in the next decade. And, you know, what got you here is not going to take you to the next level. And and it comes down to really today, especially with a lot of large, older companies, um, it comes down to these organizational characteristics, these traits that permeate throughout the organization, you know, and the, during the industrial era, we were very hierarchical and bureaucratic by nature, yep. and, and, it, and it was ideal for its time and place. But the 21st century has fundamentally changed the environment in which we, we operate in, and, and those things that made us successful throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s, they, they don't work today. It, it, is, it is so interesting. Um, 
as part of Intrado were a bunch of different acquisitions and some of the groups that came from larger organizations, they don't like to take risk. They don't un- understand when I talk to them, like, we need to, we're large, but we need to disrupt ourselves. So we need to think out of the box and we need to use ingenuity and initiative. And, you know, in the book, you even talk about how you guys retrofitted some of the helicopters so they would work better in the Iraq heat or where, where you were and better for combat. And I find it one of my biggest frustrations. How do I get through to people and go, it's okay to disrupt what you know. That we're calling yeah. this the age of, age of disruption, right? And yeah. we initially thought of that as, as technologies and things. And now we're seeing that it's much more than that. Um, yep. this pandemic has, has forced us to take a, a unique look at ourselves and right. we're finding out who's really important in our companies. Yep. You know, I, I had a, uh, an executive vice president of a fortune 500 company tell me, you know, I think I could die and nothing would change. He's <laughs> like, I, I didn't realize how, how unimportant I really was. <laughs> All right. So not to, not to jump off the book, but since you brought it up, um, and as we're going through COVID, when you look at everything, I, what does it make you think and with, with, you know, your military background and everything that's going on? Can you believe we're going through this? You know, the war, as I mentioned in the book, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. The war yep. really sped up our learning curve. It forced us to question our assumptions and the way we had always did things. And, you know, to, to plug uh, Stan McChrystal, who wrote the forward to my book, Pale Horse, and Team of Teams, he talks about, you know, that – we were getting outmaneuvered by an inferior enemy and we, and, and it was because all of our authorities were held at the very top of the organization. It made us slow and bureaucratic, which really caused us to assume more risk to the force because we were late getting there. We were behind shoot, we, we called it shooting behind the target, you know. Um, and so this pandemic, I think, um, you know, terrible that we're having to go through this. However, yep. It is a forcing function to cause us to question many of those same things in terms of business. I think we're going to, you know, as we try to define the new norm, we're going to see that it's it's not a new norm that is a steady state. So we transform from the old version of us to a new version. But it's a set of characteristics. We'll realize that some folks can work from home. Some folks can't. Maybe, you know, commercial real estate's probably going to take a hit, I think. And nice. that means that we're questioning a lot of the assumptions we made. We're going to find some hybrid model of normal, but we're going to try and create organizations that when the next thing happens, whatever it may be, we're postured to be able right. to take advantage of that, not uh, be a casualty of that. All right. I, I, I agree 100 percent. All right. So with your background, though, are you more of a person that I think we should be? Do you enjoy being in an office with others as opposed to working alone? Oh, yeah, I'm a people person. I, I'm I'm doing a executive leadership series with a company now. I did the first cohort of their leadership in person, and I'm doing this one on Zoom. And it's just, you know, the ability to shake a hand, put a hand yep. on a shoulder, look in the eye, read body language of everybody in the room. For me, I thrive and feed off of that. Uh, me too. I, I miss people. All right. I'm going to look down at my notes because I want to get your quote perfect here. It, it, a phrase in the book that stuck with me was, while war is common, it's not natural. It produces unparalleled bonds, a brotherhood forged in the heat of combat. Do you think we come together more easily 
the more difficult and harrowing the task is? And how how do good leaders facilitate this? Yeah, so that quote, it's interesting because the first cut of the book, my editor came back and said, some people would argue that war is natural. And, and what I mean by that, to clarify, is I don't think it's natural to the human. It affects us all, uh, and, and it affects us all differently. Okay, yeah, so in my last book, Pale Horse, I, I was sitting at my desk, and my doc came in, and he threw two pieces of paper down on the, the desk in front of me, and he said, you need to understand this. I'm like, well, what is this? And it was single space, two pages. He said, every one of those lines is a soldier in your organization that I am either medically treating or counseling for um, you know, stress and anxiety and, and how this word's affecting them. As a leader, I become so focused on the mission, what we were doing. It was just because we were fighting every day. And so we have to understand that the, the environment is stressful. I mean, what's going on in homes today? Uh, people are worried about, are my kids going to go back to school? Am I going to be able to get daycare? If it's some hybrid model of online learning and, and in person, how can I manage that? Um, single parent families different than traditional families. I mean, it's, there are so many complexities that leaders are going to have to have the skills to be able to, to handle that we have to be very open to, to everything, not just us. Everybody doesn't feel the way I feel or, you know, handle stress in the way that I handle stress. I, I agree. I've been trying to spend a lot of time with my global executive leadership team just asking them what are they going through. And I do feel like in our own way, we're going through our own war. Our, our business is, is growing because we do a lot of virtual and a lot of PR. And it, one of the most interesting things is as we fight each of the battles, whether it's technology things that we're working on, whether it's employee things, whether it's customer things, I feel like we're building like a stronger bond together because we all have the same mission. And I think one of the things that everyone since they're working at home from now likes to know more than ever, all right, why are we going up this hill? How am I going to get there? All right, now we're on this hill. What's our next hill? They love knowing what the next thing is because they can't look to someone to the left and right of them to sort of boost them up. And this is nice, and it's nice seeing you, but this isn't any human interaction. No, I agree. So it's a new, these are new leadership challenges. How do you build that team, those relationships? How do you unite between vision and purpose when people are displaced, when it is virtual? You know, and we can't underestimate the discussion that takes place, you know, after the meeting or before the meeting starts, just like conferences. You know, I, I'm a keynote speaker all over the world at these big conferences. It isn't just the seminar. It isn't just the speaker. It's, dinner that night that's where business and relationships and trust and those things take place that can't that can't be done virtually so it's a challenge but you bring up another great point that that Steve Schiller in my book Cowboys was a master at and that is this idea of intent uh, he was he spent a tremendous amount of time trying to communicate very clearly our vision our purpose and his commander's intent, as we call it in the military, so that everybody had alignment of what that vision was. And then he trusted and empowered them to make decisions based on that mutual understanding. And that's what we need to speed our businesses up today to empower and entrust subordinates to to execute and make decisions based on that common vision and purpose.
Yep. I mean, I've been, again, the whole thing is my job is to empower other leaders to make decisions, whether it's one down, two down, three down in the organization, and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but since you brought up Schiller, um, one of the interesting things is you mentioned how he had this whole excitement and enthusiasm for innovation that it was, that it was infectious, right? And, and before we go to that, it just made me think, you also mentioned that every time you would talk to him, he really made you feel like he was interested in what you say. And I know I've spoken to a lot of people that I've reported up to, and I'm sure some of my team has had conversations with me, and they could tell I'm sending emails and I'm not giving them 100% of their focus. Was he really like that? Like when you were with him, he was like lazy in on what you were talking about? Yeah, I, I laugh because uh, Steve Schiller was a unique individual. He uh, he had this thing for example, just little things. He would when you would shake his hand, he would catch you off guard almost every time. He was known throughout the army for this. He would shake your hand, and when you started to shake, he'd pull you off balance, and you'd fall into him, and it was really awkward. And and you know, you'd be if you knew him and you were around him a lot, it would get you, but. Little things like that always, so that conversation then would always begin with a laugh, right? It would always begin on a light note. Whether you were a private or you were, you know, his peer, he would do those little things and very engaging. Um, and, and he championed innovation and initiative. He knew that he had to get, he had to get others to see uh, that their peers were coming up with ideas, were innovating, trying to make us better. And when he would reinforce that, they would go, hey, he is listening. He does want to move the needle in terms of, you know, our readiness and capability. And so it made others eager to try new things. I mean, he he did not see the world with a ceiling or a floor, I assure you. There were no walls in the building. I mean, he was open to pretty much anything. And that made some people uncomfortable, um, but it, it caused him to be able to, at an unprecedented pace, make us more effective. I love that. I love that. So now when you're um, doing your job with corporations, how do you instill that in, in a leadership team that you're working with? Yeah, so uh one one client that I have right now, they are investing in a portion of the business. So they've identified this area that they need to create new products, they need to sell new products, and they're they've they've gone to great lengths to find the right leader of that organization, number one. They have not just thrown the hiring process out there. They're looking for the right types of people with the right skill set to think innovatively. And then they're championing this. So I think that's a really good model, especially if you have a very large business. You're not going to change the business overnight. But if you can identify areas almost like your beta test where you can show and and prove these things, then then it starts to kind of cross-pollinate across the business. I I love that. All right. I want to jump because I only have a couple more questions for you, and I know your time is very valuable. Let's talk a bit about the importance of morale and tactics to keeping it high, right? I'm a big, big believer of, you know, revving up the troops, revving up the team, getting them excited and getting, you know, hearing them. But, you know, you say, you know, it really boils down to people need to be heard. And how do you enable that? How do you enable that in the military that you can enable people to be heard when you're giving them orders? And how do you transition that into business? Yeah, so it kind of goes back to that listening. When I, I do on my leader behaviors and leader traits, um, 
seminar that I do, one of the things I talk about, uh, just to, to share this example with you, we, we have a tradition in the military uh, where every Thanksgiving, we, the leadership, dress up in our dress uniforms, and we invite our soldiers to bring their families and eat Thanksgiving dinner. And we, the leaders, serve them Thanksgiving dinner. So we dress up in our dress uniform. They bring their families. We feed them, and they go sit down in tables throughout the dining facility. And then it's traditional that we, the leadership, roam around table to table, meet the children, the wife. And a question that's often asked is, how are you doing? And I would get my leaders together um, before we did this, and I said, they know whether you truly want to hear the answer to that question before you ever ask it. How are you doing? They know if you care. And so I would then tell my leaders, those young men and women are willing to die for you. All they ask is that you be worth dying for. And so I asked business leaders, be the leader you would desire your son or daughter to work for. Isn't that a fair litmus test? Be, be the leader you would want your own child to work for. When we engage people in that way, in a meaningful way, we listen to understand, not just to hear. We engage and they trust us, leader to lead, led to leader. We can move organizations and people get up wanting to come to work. You know, you control your little corner of the world. And so um, you get to choose every day, whether it's a place people put the key in the ignition and say, I'm going to work. And we may have a bad day, but I work with good people in a good climate and I want to be there and w- work with those people. Or they can put the key in the ignition and go, another day at work. <laughs> Right. No, I know. Listen, I, I've said a lot on my, I do a weekly video to the team and I say, you know, every night I go to bed wondering if I did right for my team, right? Because I'm, I'm responsible for 1300 people globally and I yeah. need to make them feel engaged, empowered, motivated. And yet at the same time, I, I don't know if I'm always doing the right job, but so as you, as you've gone through it in, in your career and some of the soldiers you've worked with, do you have any anecdotes of how they have taken this and have this ability to create morale, motivate that you want to share? Well, it's, it's humbling and very rewarding when guys that worked for me now are taking over as, you know, battalion commanders of four to 600 soldiers, brigade commanders. I had one that I emailed probably six times two weeks ago to look at his leader development program. And of course it's, he's modeled it after the one he went through when he worked for me. And, and that is very rewarding. So let me ask you one last question. If, if you had to give a message, um, to, I have 1,300 people in my organization, but there's like 8,000 in the global organization, plus all the other people um, who are who are watching and listening to this. Like, what's a what's a like when they go to work every day, or you're running a team? Like, what are just like one or two things that they should be thinking about as they, you know, to motivate them or to keep morale up? I don't care how technologically advanced we become. Life is and always will be about people and relationships. It's the most important thing. Um, I, I truly believe that we uh, engaging with people in a meaningful way, gaining their trust. And, you know, we, we develop trust. If you think of the equation character times competence equals trust. Right. Yeah. Character 
it's easy to lose, but it's uh, hard to gain, right, back if you don't have it. So building a team of people of character and then demonstrated competence day in and day out, performing, doing your part, pulling your you know fair share of the load, that equates to trust, and that is powerful in organizations. I, I I love that. And actually, you know, a, a, a saying I just heard that sort of resonates with me is a true test of a leader is how many leaders you end up making. And, yeah. and it sounds like in your career, you've created a lot of leaders and our, our country is thankful for it. I'm thankful for it. And now you're doing it in the world of business. Everyone should read the book. It is amazing. Cowboys over Iraq. Um, it is a must read. Most importantly, Jimmy, stay safe. Um, thank you for your time. And, again, thank you for your service, sir. Thanks for having me on, man. Have a great day. You too.